Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, January 25th, 2021. On the show today, news, listener questions. And in our main segment, Jim talks about the history of Disney's Vero Beach Resort. It's the only DVC resort I've not stayed at, so I'm super excited to hear about this. Let's get started by bringing in the man whose wildlife tip for differentiating between an alligator and a crocodile is to check whether it sees you later or after a while. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? It's going well, Len. And this makes me think of there have only, to my knowledge, been three different times that Disney has done walk-around characters to the park that were either alligators or crocodiles. They had the crocodile from Peter Pan Mm -hmm. uh, as a costume. They also did Ben Alligator from Fantasia. uh, Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. From the... um there were, that would have been interesting because that would have, character would have fit into the Animal Kingdom Fantasia-like uh, thing for Beastly Kingdom, okay? He would have. And then finally, we had Lewis from uh, Princess and the Frog, who the Imagineers are revisiting right now for that Splash Mountain Princess of the Frog redo. And it turns out he's going to be a particularly difficult character to do as an animatronic because he's so big and so heavy. I mean, they did Br'er Bear. They could do an alligator. Brer Bear at least was pear-shaped. With dealing with Lewis, it's like dealing with a sentient kielbasa. <laughs> Not a shape that lends itself to easy movement, or at least with an acrylic underpinning. So it's like they're facing some challenges. I think sentient kielbasa should be one of the characters on Welcome to Nightville. I think the uh, the podcast, if it's not already, I haven't listened in a couple of years. It might be. Who knows? We'll have to check. So, All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at Disney Dish. Bandcamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Bailey Aggie 2022, KLT, and Mystic 6. And longtime subscribers, Disney Doodle, S. Gillespie, and Grace V. Jim. These are the winter sports veterans who are tasked with teaching Olaf how to ice skate for his scene in the Frozen Ever After boat ride. And I'm told the original idea was for the Olaf animatronic to do a backflip. But Josh Gad said that was Surya Bodily's move, and Olaf felt like more of an Alina Zagatova-style skater. So it never happened. True story. We didn't just spend a lot of our past weekend watching the U.S. figure skating nationals out of Las Vegas, did we? I think I would would tie it all in. You know, it was one of those things. Wow. Okay. Because it, <laughs> I, I remember when Surya Bonale was out there actually doing the backflip. And it's, a, and it's, illegal, it's an illegal move in competition. That's it, exactly. But you can do it in that, the exhibits. Yeah, yeah. 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 And the group of muscles one needs to do a backflip when we're a female skater were particularly impressive on, on Ms. Bonale. She never got the scores that she deserved. And I always thought that you really don't want to tick off a woman who can do that, who can yeah. jump backwards and has sharpened steel on her feet. Yeah. I mean, the core and the leg strength to do that on ice. I mean, I couldn't do oh, it standing yeah. up. I couldn't no, do it no. off of a diving board probably. And she can do it, you know, well on ice skates. Yeah, that's no, it, it was amazing. And and they made it an illegal move because she had the strength to do it. And, and the no fear one was did. exactly. Yeah. No, that's a yeah, that some kid a, would yeah. imitate her and get hurt. It's true. Yeah, I thought uh, she was like she was the I think the vanguard of the the super athletic oh, skaters, yeah, yeah, you know, coming yeah. out of like uh, like in the period mm-hmm. before that it was more artistry and hand movement and stuff like that, mm-hmm. and then it became yeah. essentially a jumping contest for a while. 
Honestly, Nancy's gone to, out of the last seven years, five or six of the Nationals, she always volunteers, and she was sitting watching Peacock all weekend as, as you know, the skaters played and was just sort of like, I want to be there. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jim, the big news over the last week, of course, Disneyland cancels its annual pass holder program. So this affects hundreds of thousands of people in Southern California. My guess here is it's a response to upcoming park capacity limits when Mm -hmm. Disneyland reopens. The impacted demand will have been a full year without people having access to Disneyland in in March. And the fear is it would be the Oklahoma land rush only with mouse ears. And so something had to be done. And this finally is the corner Disney got forced into. Well, we've said for a while that Disney was looking at ways to revamp its Disneyland passholder program. And we've talked in the past on the show about how Disney has raised the price of an annual pass from a few hundred dollars to, you know, over a thousand Mm -hmm. fairly rapidly in the last couple of years in an attempt to price out some of the market, or at least to make the revenue that they're getting from annual passholders roughly equivalent to that, that they're getting from out of state guests. Cause Bob Chippick has said, right. Annual passholders who come in for, you know, a day or two at a time aren't as profitable as out-of-town guests who stay for a few days. They aggressively bumped up the price, but then they kept the monthly payment program. (laughs) For a number of friends of mine, they just began to think of the Disney annual pass as, you know, like their cable bill. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I pay a hundred bucks a month and uh, I get into Disneyland whenever I want. Yeah. It's just another bill you pay every month. Yeah. And that was the problem. Disney loved that money, but at the same time, they didn't like the issues that came with the annual pass holders. I mean, again, for example, one of the reasons we got the Pixar Pals parking structure was the fact that so many Southern Californians would drive to Disneyland as one person in their car. Yeah. Rather than the normal family vacation pattern where you arrive with three, four, five people in your car. Right. They have made assurances that on the other side of this membership program as opposed yeah. to annual pass program. Yeah, they, they specifically use those words. And so that makes me think that they were looking at some sort of points or days-based system mm-hmm. where, you know, your membership like like, like DVC gets you mm-hmm. a certain number of points that you can use over the course of a month or a quarter. Think about what we've already seen in place at Walt Disney World. You know, the notion that if you buy your ticket in advance and the notion if you buy it midweek, it's this price point or you get that much closer to the weekend. So, yeah, people would have points to spend. Disney has developed this group of annual pass holders who come to all the retail events, who are in there for, you know, (laughs) there's a lot of revenue lines that Disney would like to keep going. Like the, for example, the collectible popcorn buckets, which were basically something that annual pass holders went for rather than the day guests. So on the other side of this, they do want those things to return. I know it's disturbing for the folks out in LA and Anaheim and environs. And also to be honest, did you see what universal and knots did? (laughs) We love our annual pass holders. Come on in. I didn't see that. I saw that uh, universal Orlando did a, uh, a couple of tweets about annual pass holders and Mm -hmm. uh, something like that, but I didn't, uh, I didn't see that knots did as well. Yeah. Yeah. So right now Walt Disney world is not, selling new annual passes. Do you think that when they revive the annual pass program, they'll be looking at a similar kind of membership or points-based system? If we're comparing California to Florida, 
they're two very different animals. I mean, we're talking two theme parks versus four theme parks. Yeah. We're talking about a significantly larger group of annual pass holders out in, in, in California. California. Yeah. So they were still selling the multi-park pass, right, for both Disneyland and Disney World, both resort pass? No, they're, uh, they're not selling those anymore. Okay, because... I was looking to get some some clarification on that. But yeah, yeah, Walt Disney World should continue. But at the same time, they recognize that there is a certain subset of folks who who do the Disney World and do the Disneyland and that they're trying yeah. to accommodate them as well. So I think an email went out to premier pass holders who mm-hmm. said, you know, you'll still have access to Disneyland and we're, you know, we're trying to figure something out, so bear with us. That's pretty much the language that I was hearing as well. So yeah. hard reality, the only constant in life is change. So, you know, that's, that's, I guess we have to just roll with this change. Yep. The other big news this week, uh, the Hall of Presidents closed for installation. President Biden's animatronic. No word on what's going to reopen. I did hear, Jim, that because of the furloughs and layoffs, that there aren't enough Imagineers around for a revamp of the show. So don't expect anything big in terms of changes. We'll probably get at some point when President Biden records his speech in maybe the oath of office, uh, it'll be those couple of things, but not a whole new uh, show. Did you get in to see the new version of Hall of Presidents when they they put in the Trump figure? Uh, I haven't seen it now. The film portion, the introductory elements were quite good. I mean, the update was smart and and well done. The Imagineers felt it was somewhat challenging to work with Mr. Trump. In fact, I don't think it's John Carl's book, Front Row at the Trump Show. But they talk about going in to record with Mr. Trump, and they had prepped the speech that uh, normally the way it works is they, they try to take whatever the president has said at the inaugural and kind of do uh, collapse it down to a 50 to a second to a, a minute long excerpt for the speech. Because again, the show still has to be able to get groups of guests in every half hour or so. Yeah, it's going to be snappy. Yeah. And President Trump's inaugural speech with things like, you know, American Carnage was a little dark. And yeah. so they had to work in a different speech. And when they brought him in to record it, Mr. Trump, as he he's known to do, wanted to ad lib. But to be honest, they were thrilled with Biden's speech. It lends itself beautifully to cutting down a nice little hopeful excerpt. Yeah. And the only other note I have to share is the last time around, Disney farmed out the likeness. And that's not that's not going to happen this time is what you're saying? That's not going to happen. They're, they're, yeah, because that was the other thing that when the show opened, all people could talk about is like, that looks like Trump. It was not a particularly good likeness. I don't want to besmirch the the outside firm that did that for Disney because I guess I understand it. They're the ones who've who've done like the Johnny Depp, Captain Jack Sparrow, and and yep. normally they're they're pretty good. But yeah, they'll do better this time with Biden. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Jim, let's do some uh, some listener questions. Uh, speaking of annual passes, Brandy writes in with this helpful money saving tip. Former annual pass holders, those who canceled their pass during COVID, are able to get new annual passes now with the pass holder renewal discount. I had phoned ticket services concerning another ticketing question, and the cast member asked if I'd like to renew my annual pass, which I was very much interested in doing. Someone phoned me back after a week or so, and I was able to, quote, renew passes that were canceled in August 2020. The new one-year period doesn't start until we use the pass the first time. And the voucher we got says that we have until 2030 to activate it. Uh, I thought this might be helpful for Hmm. some of your other listeners. So, wow, that's fabulous. Thank you, Randy, for sending that in. 
Yeah. Christy wrote in about uh, our show last week where we talked about the Epcot Person of the Century poll, and we mentioned it there, Jim, that Disney cast members had rigged it so that a uh, Disney janitor had won. Mm. Christy writes in with the observation that this is the original Bodie McBoatface. <laughs> oh, my God. I forgot about Bodie McBoatface. Yeah. Totally, totally is. Did that actually go forward in the UK? No, I, I think they, they changed it to something else, uh, which geez. was a shame. Okay. Uh, another listener named uh, Christy sent in a Disney survey with a question I've never seen before. She stayed in uh, in Orlando, but not in a Walt Disney World Resort. And the survey question was this: Where was the home where you were staying located? And the four choices were Davenport, Claremont, Four Corners, which was one choice, mm-hmm. Golden Oak, which is Disney's community by over the Four Seasons, other Orlando area, or outside Orlando. So Four Quarters Gym is the area immediately south and west Mm. of Walt Disney World property. It's the area around 192 West, like Flamingo Crossing is, Mm. but why, why do you think Disney mentioned these two specific areas? They actually was at one point a national campaign for Kissimmee. Back in the day, people were willing to stay that far down 192 and travel up to Walt Disney World. So the Davenport, Claremont, uh, Four Corners, wow, that's almost in the exact opposite direction of, of Kissimmee. Yeah, I was thinking it had something to do with the development that Disney's doing at Flamingo Crossing, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. is that inner, that's, it's basically the middle of Four Quarters over oh. by um, Coronado Springs and you just keep going where mm-hmm. they've got like a, um, a Spring Hill Suites and a couple of other Marriott properties. But they just announced a huge development deal there for uh, retail space and for um, cast member uh, lodging. Isn't the Margaritaville development also? It over? is right there. Yeah, yeah, it's a little bit farther down. You have to take, uh, I think it's Black Lake Road, there we um, go. which intersects there we go. with Sherbeth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, over there. But that's uh, that's a little bit farther down, yeah. But it's just so fascinating to watch the center of gravity shift. And I don't know when's the last time you actually traveled down to Kissimmee, but it's just sort of like... It lived like three minutes from Kissimmee, but yeah. <laughs> okay, so... I mean, so West Kissimmee, like the West area, 192, the Four Corners area, Yeah, I, I don't get there as often. I'm generally east of okay. uh, on the east part of 192. Yeah, but if you travel down 192 to Kissimmee, St. Cloud... It's like a smile with all sorts of teeth missing. I just sort of, you know, there's so much stuff down there that used to be attractions that people would visit that just, they don't go down that way anymore. And when you think about all of the money that was poured into the mile markers and, you know, the changes of signage and all that to make it more attractive. And now here we are. Yeah. I mean, tons of mom and pop hotels close. You mentioned Margaritaville though. I have toured that recently. Oh, okay. It's really interesting. They've got... The big feature there is the cottages. So they've got mm-hmm. these uh, freestanding homes, mm-hmm. anywhere from one to, I think, 10 bedrooms. And those, to me, seem to be a better deal than the hotel rooms. The hotel rooms are nice. Mm-hmm. Um, they're in the towers. That's the first sort of phase of construction. I believe there's supposed to be six phases. I don't know how it got pushed off by COVID. There's still a lot of construction to be done over there. And mm-hmm. there's not a lot of in-hotel dining options. I think they've got one restaurant and one sort of grab and go place. Um, mm-hmm. But the, what they're really relying on is the shopping center that's immediately adjacent to Margaritaville to provide restaurants and entertainment and stuff like that. But um, mm-hmm. you can get to Disney pretty quickly again through that Black Lake Road uh, mm-hmm. thing where you don't have to go down 192. So it's sort of a shortcut. 
the thing I'm interested in seeing, and I've got we've got people who are staying here coming up soon, is what the price point is. Like last year when they first opened, it was a little bit more expensive. The hotel rooms were a little bit more expensive than a Disney moderate. Mm-hmm. And I didn't see the value proposition for that hotel at that price point at that time, right? Because you still got to drive to Disney. You don't get the on-site amenities. And it's basically the same cost as a moderate. Now, the rooms were nice, mm-hmm. but it was the it was the lack of sort of Disney on-site benefits that was making me wonder whether it was worth the money. So we'll see what happens this year. we got somebody, like I said, uh, staying there pretty soon. Okay. Love to hear that. Let's look forward to it. Speaking of other uh, surveys, our listener, Jen, also got a new survey from Disney and sent in this really interesting question that I have never heard before. Uh, so I've never seen this asked in a Disney survey. And the question is this, in which of the following ways did you or will you plan to use the savings from this special offer? So uh, Jen booked a Disney vacation with uh, one of the hotel discounts that just came out. So what Disney wants to know here is, would you do with the money that, that you saved? And the, the choices are this. I upgraded to a better resort. I upgraded to a better room type within my resort. I'm going to buy more food or drinks. I'm going to buy more merchandise or souvenirs. I'm going to visit other non-Disney attractions. I'm going to save some of the money. I bought a longer ticket. I took a longer vacation. I saved all of the money and didn't spend it or something else. So, Jim, I've never seen this question before. What's Disney thinking here? It's basically folks in-house trying to justify, we reduced the price. We, we, we took a hit here, but we got them on property. Right. But look at where they told us where they spent the money. We reduced the cost of staying in a room here on property. Yeah. But in turn, they bought more merch. Or, yeah, or, you know, or, they, they, or, or we make up the money in the back end, right? That's the big they, There we go. There we go. Right now, Disney is eyeballing all of these revenue streams that the company used to have. Things like Wild Africa Tracker. Yeah, after hours events, early early morning events, yeah, fireworks cruises, yeah. All of them have gone away so that yeah. every penny is being watched in the notion of, okay, I reduced the cost of them coming, but look how much more they spent on merch. And now, mind you, they will be checking <laughs> whether it comes to what did World of Disney do, how were the sales there, or you know, right. how did the Emporium do, or that sort of thing, looking for hard evidence of, of what's been presented in these surveys. But interesting survey. I think some of this too is, uh, you know, Disney knows that because we're in the middle of a pandemic, the people who are going to Disney World, especially, really want to go mm-hmm. to Walt Disney mm-hmm. World, right? And so I think the question is, is do we even need to offer a discount to these people, given the fact that parks are limited to thirty five percent capacity, and we don't seem to have any trouble filling them, and we don't want them overfilled, right? Like, do we need to be giving away this money? I think that's that's part of the motivation for the question too. Also, a great point. All right. Uh, So, Jim, uh, last week uh, in our show notes, we published photos from Walt Disney World in the winter of 1971, and including one of the long lines in Fantasyland to get on the Skyway. And that prompted our listener, Alex, to write in to say, it just proves they've had congestion problems between Peter Pan and Small World since 1971, and they're still trying to figure uh, them out. Yes, Alex, it is a tale as old as time. We've got Dick Nunes talking about, as part of an expansion plan for Walt Disney World, wanting to put the Matterhorn right behind Small World. 
Yeah, that would have been great. So it would loom up behind a Pinocchio house and get a sort of, this is the Italian side of the Alps. But if you put that in there, how much more congested would that, never mind the space between Peter Pan and Small World, the notion of you put the Matterhorn behind Pinocchio house, you wouldn't be able to like, get out another body into that side of yeah, the park. They would, they would have had to move a significant chunk of building right there. There's no way that that would have worked. Yeah, yeah. But supposedly when the tangled toilets went in and they were able to move the stroller parking, that did help. And I, I think you noted, you know, in the unofficial guide that it did get some better in that stretch. It did get better, yeah. Just moving the uh, the entrance itself was, was a huge help. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Uh, finally, Adam writes in with this question about the ending of Disney's Magical Express. Do you think the luggage service will return? A few years ago, we stopped using the Magical Express for our arrival. We would use a van from Mears for around $100, mainly to save time, but would use the bus on the way back. The whole saving time thing would rely on not having to deal with bags. So will the bag service come back? The other thing that Alex mentions is that there's a um, there's still a second issue with car seats. Mears vans would have to have at least one of them, so they were always okay. But finding an Uber with a car seat or two car seats mm-hmm. uh, is challenging. Yeah, so these are the, the two big issues Ooh. that we're hearing from people, right? And mm-hmm. who's going to handle the luggage? And then what do we do about car seats? So we've heard mm-hmm. that a lot. I haven't heard anything from Disney on this. Have you? No, I haven't. But you have to wonder, you know the setup at Orlando Airport where they have that satellite lot that the Uber vehicles sit in. Yeah. It's over by the gas station now. Yeah. We've got a year now or less till Magical Express officially shuts down. Yep. Uber is very good at sussing out the client issues and that sort of thing. And the notion that the Orlando market would have this sort of specialization, the notion of the number of families who are about to now be looking at Uber yeah. You know, you have to wonder if there have to be Uber drivers who take this into account and have a child seat or two in the back ready to handle this. So That's it. I think uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see either Uber or Lyft add a mm-hmm. number of child car seats needed mm-hmm. option to the app. It seems like it's relatively straightforward to do. You can mm-hmm. add it to the uh, the profile for each vehicle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would I would expect something like that. And they've got enough time to do it too. So that, that that's No, great. no, absolutely. They've got eleven months and change at this point to, yeah, to address it. And cool, very good. All right, folks, we're gonna take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim and I talk about the history of Disney's Vero Beach Resort. We'll be right back. Jim, I was super excited when you mentioned Vero Beach as a topic for today's show because it's the one resort I've never stayed at. And it's kind of amazing because it's what, like two hours southeast of Orlando? I mean, it's a relatively straightforward drive. It is. It is. Uh, now, mind you, you have to go down what they refer to as Alligator Alley to get there. A two-lane, a two-lane road populated on either side by canals with reptiles. What could possibly go wrong, Jim? Oh my God. Nancy and I have only been down to Vero Beach once. But it was the drive back that night on Alligator Alley where it's not just that it's a two-lane, you know, with canals on either side. It's that there are virtually no traffic, no lighting. So it is a dark road. Yeah. Yeah. You're driving in the dark on two lanes. And all you can think of is they'll never find us. (laughs) That's it. Yeah. And they were never heard from 
Again, yeah, I have yeah. I have stories of driving on A1A back when I lived in South Florida. Yeah, did not enjoy that part of it, but the resort itself was charming, and it's a small resort. It's only uh, 175 villas, and it's themed around kind of the feel of the Florida's Treasure Coast. But Florida's Treasure Coast was not the first place that the Walt Disney Company thought of building a really for real beach resort. The original site that the company zeroed in on was 45 miles to the north along the Atlantic coast in Brevard County. This plot of land was to the south of Melbourne, Florida, and just to the east of the Indian River. Not something that the company was idly considering doing, Len. They actually bought the land. Really? When was this? What year? August of 71. So we're two months out from Walt Disney World opening. Okay. Company buys several beachfront tracks, total of 90 acres of land, wind up with 4,300 feet of beachfront property. Mm-hmm. Disney really did pick it up for a song. They got all of this property for $1.59 million. Wow. But you have to understand that they're buying this in August of 71 when money is ridiculously tight on the Walt Disney World project. Because again, remember, they're trying to get that place open mm-hmm. for October 1st of that same year. But Disney felt this purchase was justified largely because there was a concern that they were going to come up against traditional Florida tourism patterns. They do all of their research and, you know, prior to buying the land in Orlando, they knew, for example, that during the 1960s, uh, Florida was in the middle of experiencing a tourism boom. Prior to 1960, there were like 10.8 million people in the United States who would annually travel to Florida, but they'd largely go to the beaches. And Disney knew from tracking the numbers that that had basically doubled in the mid-1960s leading to the late 1960s. But again, that was largely because of Cape Canaveral. People now, because of their interest in in what NASA was up to, would go down to Florida, would spend some time at the beach, but would would swing over to Cape Canaveral. And, And especially if there was a launch scheduled during the time they were in town. In fact, July 16th, 1969, more than a million people then made their way to the Space Coast so they could watch Apollo 11 be launched. And Disney's concerns, and these were legitimate concerns, was that they were about to launch the Vacation Kingdom in the middle of the state. I mean, they knew people would come over and sample Disney World. But there are no beaches, right? Which yeah. Which is a huge draw in Florida, right? So they, there's some challenges. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, and, and the weird part of it is, is you, if you want proof of this, go watch the Project Florida film. The last thing that basically Walt films before he, he passes. And it, at one point, they have Walt standing with a pointer in front of a map of the state of Florida. And there's only a couple of cities listed on the entire state. You get Orlando and Kissimmee, so you get a sense of, okay, that's where Disney World's going to be built. And to mm-hmm. give you a sense of where it is in the state, they, they, they also show, okay, off to the west here is Tampa and St. Pete. But the only other things listed in the entire state of Florida are Daytona Beach and Cape Canaveral. <laughs> the Florida Tourism Board is smacking their heads on the table. <laughs> no. That was what Disney saw as its competition. Sure. So, Right. I remember we talked about this with um, the analysis that Buzz Price did for Disney back yes. in the 60s. Like, yes, were the major draws exactly. yeah. for Florida at the time. Okay, fair enough. Okay. So, we know we are going to be competing with the beach. So, why not join them? And Disney is very, very straightforward upfront about about this plan for the resort. In the company's 1971 annual report, they include a beautiful aerial shot 
of the beachfront property that the company had just purchased, and they include this description. Looking to the future, subsidiaries of the company during 1971 purchased 5,000 feet of beach property along the Atlantic Ocean, representing approximately 80 acres of land south of Melbourne Beach in Brevard County. Our primary objective one day will be to provide a natural ocean beach playground for families visiting Walt Disney World. And want to stress here, Len, that phrase, natural ocean beachfront playground. That's the giveaway that what the Imaginators were hoping to do out at Melbourne Beach wasn't really going to be all that ambitious. Mind you, it had a great name, Disney by the Sea. But the plan was it consists of a small hotel, condominium complex of equal size, and a restaurant that was supposed to have served uh, folks who were staying at both, either of these facilities. And then out front, there was going to be a marina that could handle watercraft. Now, now, not cruise ships, mind you, but pleasure craft. You know, the notion of you know, tourists that would motor up for the day to Melbourne so they could experience Disney by the sea. Really? Wow. Yep. yep. So anyway, Disney World opens October 71. And Disney by the Sea stays very, very much front of mind uh, with folks at uh, Walt Disney Productions. They're aggressively collecting data of people who are staying in the contemporary, the Polynesian village in Fort Wilderness. And sure enough, they find that fully half of the people who took this post-Walt Disney World vacation survey said that they either spent a day on one of Florida's beaches, either right before or right after they visited Walt Disney World. So it's like, okay, we get it. Our data bears this out. So we we jump now to the 1972 annual report, and the company gives shareholders an update. It's like last year, the company acquired one mile of beachfront property fronting on the Atlantic Ocean in Melbourne, Florida. And it's part of the intercoastal waterway, which connects the Florida to the entire eastern seaboard. And in future years, the company expects to make this beach available to Walt Disney World guests and residents of the city of Lake Buena Vista, which you'll remember we talked about in a show like two, three months ago. Mm-hmm. That was the suburb, so to speak, that Disney wanted to build next to the Lake Buena Vista shopping village that was sort of going to be the you know, we build the suburb first and then we build Epcot the city. Yep. Unfortunately, all of the Epcot the city and Disney by the sea, it gets derailed by the Araborum oil embargo, mm. which happens October 73. And Disney's concern at this point is that if you remember the Arab oil embargo, it, at one point, you know, the United States was actually gas rationing, that that you you were only allowed to fill up your, or actually not even fill up your car. You, you could every get, other day, right? Yeah, every other day, uh, depending on whether or not you had an even or odd number uh, on the end of your license plate. And some, I want to say some days, it was even fill up your tank. It was like, you can get 10 gallons, you can get five gallons. Yeah, I remember this, yeah. It wasn't that Disney by the Sea was dead at this point. In fact, November 73, Disney actually does a a partial land uh, transfer with some of this 90 acres. In fact, some of the very, you know, the the actual shell companies that Disney used to buy the land for Walt Disney World, uh, Mm -hmm. at this point, it was the Compass Rose Corporation. It's still in business, and it's the one that handles this land transfer. Oh, that's funny. They're concerned about people having enough gas just to get down to Walt Disney World. And they also are concerned about, you know, well, if we encourage people to go off property to a beach, what's to say they won't drive down the road to SeaWorld of Florida, which just opened December of 73. 
So we now see a change in thinking at Disney, and it, it's particularly into Disney World, and it's like, we don't know when this is going to end. And their concern was, okay, so what's to say that there won't be a second Arab oil embargo? Right. And so maybe it would be smarter to spend money on building things on property, and if, if people say want to go to the beach, why don't we give them a beach? So that's where River Country comes from. And, you know, Six Acre Water Park opens at Fort Wilderness in June of 76. But Disney holds on to all of this beachfront property in Brevard County. There's a May 1978 interview in Florida today. And Dick Nunes, the then president of outdoor attractions at Disney, Tells the reporter with, with, with obvious enthusiasm, few places in the world offer us what we could buy in Brevard County. We needed and wow. wanted a location close to Walt Disney World. And the fact that we could buy land with ocean on the one side and river on the other was perfect. As of May 1978, this project is still alive. However, Nunes goes on to say, I can tell you without equivocation that Walt Disney has nothing planned for this property for at least five years. Oh, wow. If you work the math... May 1970 plus five, this is all on hold because Disney is concentrating on building Epcot Center. Right. That's supposed to open in October of 82 and figure if you, a year to allow it to do the shakedown and get it open fully, you know, then. So they're pivoting, they're, they're imagining pivoting to working, you know, once again, picking up again where they left off uh, with Disney by the Sea in 1983. But as part of this interview, the reporter brings up some of the uh, rumors that over the years have been associated with Disney by the Sea. And at one point they were talking about, in fact, it's, it's interesting early in the show, you're talking about the, the, the gentleman with ties to transportation who was mentioning about monorail expansion. Mm -hmm. And the rumor was that Disney was going to run a monorail line from the you know physical Walt Disney World Resort all the way out to its beachfront property. And, and Nunes... <laughs> you imagine what that would cost? Well, this is the thing. Nunes actually says, you know, the, the laugh that said, people think that Disney has this endless supply of money. It's like, I wish we did, but we could do some of the things that people ask of us. And it's like, look, we have a concept in mind that we want to do here, an opportunity to expand, an opportunity to offer Walt Disney World visitors a complete Florida vacation with a trip to the beach included. We have put together some ideas, but nothing is set for the future, that's for sure. So Dick talks about money as part of this May 78 interview because uh, Epcot opens, as we mentioned, October of 82. And this is when the Disney stock price really starts to take a roller coaster ride, largely because Epcot doesn't make its attendance projections and it doesn't make its its guest spending projections. And by the time we get to the end of this roller coaster ride, it's September of 84. And Michael Eisner is now the new head of the Walt Disney Company. And Michael has his own ideas in, in regard to uh, you know, what he wants to do when it comes to Disney doing something by the beach in Florida. Oh, by the way, I, I want to mention that a good chunk of the info for, for today's story comes from uh, Aaron Goldberg's The Disney Story, chronicling the man, the boat, the mouse, and the parks uh, was published by Quaker Scribe back in August of 2016. And I bring up the publication date because Aaron went to the Brevard County Clerk back in 2016. <laughs> and right. he, he asked for them to do a real estate transaction search for the 90 acres of beachfront property that Disney owns between the Indian River and Melbourne oh, Beach. Oh, see if they still owned it? 
The most recent transaction on this property was back in 98 when Disney, again, through Compass Rose and Lake Buena Vista properties sold off a teeny tiny chunk. So they still own this beachfront property? So, and which is an hour away from, from Disney World? Why? So they still own it. But why then, if they still own it, did they build at Vero, which is two hours away? The Brevard County site is, is a full hour closer to Walt Disney World. I mean, there's got to be a story here. I wonder if it's if they were concerned that staying there would cannibalize stays at the parks for people who were going on Disney cruises. Ooh, ooh, did not think of that. I mean, face it, we're not talking about a, a very sizable hotel anyway. Remember, they always described it as a small hotel, tiny condominium complex. Right. And as we'll talk about next time when we, we, we continue with the Vero Beach story, yes, there were plans to aggressively expand Vero Beach that ultimately fell through and they only have the 176 units they or villas they have there today, largely because two hours away was too far for people staying at Walt Disney World. Ah, uh, okay. But again, we'll, we'll we'll get to that story on the next show. Oh, that's fascinating, though. I didn't know they still own the uh, the land. That's fabulous. Yeah, yeah. I love that name, though, Disney by the Sea. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes, including a second set of ideas that Disney came up with for the Land Pavilion back in the 1970s. On next week's show, we'll finish up this story of Disney's Vero Beach Resort. You can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, Len, at touringplans.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who'll be giving knitting lessons in both the English and Continental style at the Waynesburg Sheep and Fiber Festival on Saturday, May 15th, starting at 9 a.m. at the fairgrounds in beautiful downtown Waynesburg, Pennsylvania. While Aaron's doing that, please go onto iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.